Okay, let me uh, read now what's going to be the last part of the body contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the nine charnel ground contemplations. Again, a monk, if he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, and this is not a cemetery, this is where corpses were thrown in various degrees of decay. If he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, discolored, festering, the monk should compare this body that is alive think with that, thinking this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So he abides contemplating body internally, externally, and both. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And he also abides contemplating the arising and passing away, the impermanence of this body, and those that have been cast aside in the charnel grounds. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, eaten by crows, hawks, or vultures, by dogs or jackals, or various other creatures, compares this body with that, thinking this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, a monk as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground, thrown aside, a skeleton with flesh and blood connected by sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood connected by sinews, a skeleton detached from flesh and blood connected by sinews, randomly connected bones scattered in all direction, a hand bone here, a foot bone there, a shin bone here, a thigh bone there, a hip bone here, a spine here, a skull there, compares this body to that. And this is the last one. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, the bones whitened, looking like shells, the bones piled up, a year old, the bones rotted away to a powder, compares this body with that, thinking this body is of the same nature, will become just like that, is not exempt from that faith. And then to conclude the contemplation on the body, the refrain, so one abides contemplating the body internally, contemplating the body externally, contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the arising phenomena in the body, contemplating the vanishing phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. Or else mindful that there is a body is present to him, just to the extent necessary for bear knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. 
That, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. So we don't really have charnel grounds in our society. I'm imagining when I go to India in December, I might have occasion to see some dead bodies when we're in Varnarsi. It's my understanding they still take them down to the river. Will I be able to be present instead of turning away? But there are various stages of decay. You know, we might see a dead critter or one that's in the dying process or one that's been dead a long time. Can we contemplate that corpse internally and externally? It's of the same nature as this body. Same, same. So that's the sixth contemplation in the contemplation of the body called the charnel ground contemplation. Turning towards corpses rather than away from them. Okay, so that is the first foundation of mindfulness. Mindful of breath, body posture, daily activities, parts of the body, the four elements, and charnel ground contemplations. So let's move on to the next foundation, on Vedana. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating Vedana? Here, a monk, feeling a pleasant feeling, knows that he feels a pleasant feeling. You might want to say, knowing that he feels a pleasant Vedana, knows he feels a pleasant Vedana. Feeling a painful Vedana. Sometimes we say painful, sometimes we say unpleasant. doesn't really matter. So knowing a pleasant Vedana, one knows one's feeling a pleasant Vedana. Feeling an unpleasant Vedana, one knows one's feeling an unpleasant Vedana. Feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedana, one knows one's feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant, Vedna. The word Vedna in Pali is translated into the word feeling in English, but in English, sometimes the word feeling is synonymous with emotion, and Vedna does not mean emotion. So I'm going to use the word Vedna mostly, but if I use the word feeling, don't think of emotion. It is the initial categorization of sense input into pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sometimes we call that neutral, the third category. It's basically I like, I don't like, or neither. But it's something through the, that comes through the sense doors that gets categorized this way. You hear a sound, 
pleasant, unpleasant. You see a sight, pleasant, unpleasant. You taste food, pleasant, unpleasant. You smell an odor. A lot of Vedana is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You have a body sensation, unpleasant, pleasant. You have a thought, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And as we learned last night, Vedana is impermanent and about as solid as a bubble. It comes and goes, just like all sankaras. And Vedna figures prominently in at least three Buddhist teachings. Of course, it's the second foundation in the foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the context for talking about it now. It's also... Oh, I wanted to mention, in the, in the four satipatthanas, uh, the first one, as we just discussed, is the body. It has six contemplations, right? And the third foundation, which we'll get to tomorrow, lists 22 mind states, and that list is not exclusive. And then the fourth and final satipatthana lists five major contemplations of the Buddhist teachings. So six twenty-two five. With Vedna, the second contemplation, it's just Vedna. If you want to divide it into its subparts, okay, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But Vedna is important. It gets its own foundation. It's also the second of the five aggregates, which I mentioned last night. Form, which includes organs and objects of the organs. So the ear as the organ, the sound as the object of the organ, the eyes as the organ, the sights the eyes see as the objects of the eye. So both organs and eyes and objects at each sense door, that's form. So the five aggregates are form, vedna, perception, which is labeling, mental activities, which includes thoughts and emotions, and five is consciousness. Those are the five aggregates. So Vedana is the second of the Satipatthanas, and it's the second of the aggregates. And finally, Vedana is a crucial link in the chain of dependent origination. In the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination, he taught that Vedana conditions craving. And as we know from the Four Noble Truths, craving is what sets us up for dukkha, right? The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The second is its cause, which is craving. The third is the cessation of craving, which is to ab- we're supposed to abandon it. And the fourth is the noble eightfold path, the path of practice that we need to traverse to be able to abandon craving. So Vedna conditions 
craving. Vedna, in this verb of called craving, Vedna comes before craving. It, Vedna conditions craving. Craving to have something we want, which is can turn into greed, or craving to not have something we don't want, which can become aversion. Craving is where the eye is formed. It is where the whole ball of dukkha starts rolling. And Vedna conditions it. The good news is that there's a gap between Vedna and craving. And if we can find that, if we can find Vedna, we can find that gap. And if we can find that gap between Vedna and craving, we can insert our mindfulness there to prevent craving from occurring. If we can turn off craving, we won't have dukkha. And this is important because when we're not mindful of Vedna, pleasant Vedna can condition the craving mind of greed. Unpleasant Vedna can condition the craving mind of aversion. And neutral Vedna, neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedna, can condition delusion in the form of boredom or zoning out or numbing out. So Vedna conditions craving. If you can't see, there's a sign on this chair that says craving, and there's a sign on my podium that says Vedna. Well, what conditions Vedna? Sense contact. Sense contact occurs when three things come together. A sense organ, like the ear. A sense object, like sound. And sense consciousness. You're not deaf. You can hear. When those three things come together, that's sense contact. If we don't have the sense of smell, we don't have nose consciousness. But if we do have the sense of smell, we have a nose, we have an odor, we have sense consciousness at the nose, those three together form contact, which, as soon as those three come together, contact, we have Vedna, which can lead to craving. 
One of the six sense doors is the mind. We have a thought. We, our mind is working fine. You know, we've got a mind, we've got a thought. We're, we're conscious. We have mind, sense contact. We have a mind. It generates a thought. And everything's working up there. You have mind consciousness. All three together form mind sense contact, which conditions Vedna. We like the thought, we don't like the thought, or it's neutral, which can condition craving. If we're in a coma, we might not have mind consciousness. So we wouldn't have one of the three things needed for sense contact. Here's sense contact. And here are the building blocks of it. Consciousness, the organs, and the objects. If we're blind, we might not have eye consciousness. We've got the organ, and there are things to see. So we've got the organ, there are objects, but we don't have eye consciousness. So there's, there's uh, no eye sense contact for Vedana or craving. But if the eye's working, you got an eyeball, you got eye consciousness, and you see a sight, you got sense contact, which conditions Vedana, which can produce craving. So there are six types of sense consciousnesses, six types of sense organs, and six types of sense um, organs, six types of sense objects, six types of sense consciousness, six types of sense contact. And that contact conditions Vedana, which can condition craving. So there's one other thing over there called clinging, but I don't have a chair for that yet. We'll talk more about that tonight. But just as a physical demonstration, um, the difference between Vedana, craving, and clinging, Vedana is sort of like, ah, I like that. Or, no, I don't like that. Craving is, I like that, and I want it. Or craving is, no, I don't like that, and I definitely don't want it. Clinging is, oh, I like that. Oh, I want to have it. Clinging is holding on to it and not wanting to share it with anybody or, or wanting to be identified with it. And the same for unpleasant Vedana. I don't like that. Oh, I don't want it. Oh, I'm going to kill or destroy it or turn my back on it. That's clinging. Science tells us that within a tenth of a second after contact occurs, within a tenth of a second, Vedana happens. So contact and Vedana happen almost simultaneously. 
Fortunately, there's a longer gap between Vedana and craving. And in that gap, we can insert our mindfulness and choose how to respond to the Vedana of our lives instead of automatically going to craving. Sometimes it's useful not to linger in this gap between Vedana and craving. Like when we hear the unpleasant Vedana conditioned by hearing the rattle of a rattlesnake. Right? Your ears are working, and there's an object of sound, which is the rattle from the rattlesnake, and you have the contact. Object, organ, and sense consciousness are all engaged. You have contact of the rattle from the rattlesnake. It's the sense consciousness at the ear, and you have, within a tenth of a second, unpleasant Vedana. Well, I'm not going to like fool with my, I don't want to just say, gee, what should I do here? There's a rattlesnake right next to me. No, sometimes we need to just automatically respond. And in the body, as I learned from hearing a rattle from a rattlesnake last summer, the body knows exactly what to do. It just goes straight from that unpleasant Vedna to jumping to the other side of the road. Or when we have unpleasant Vedana conditioned by seeing a child about to run after a ball into a busy street. You know, we just react. Indeed, in prehistoric times, our survival depended on our response time to Vedana. You know, this happens almost automatically. Within a tenth of a second, we respond to contact. But this has a longer response time. But for some things, we know to respond quickly. After unpleasant Vedna conditioned by seeing a tiger, you know, in prehistoric times and still today, we needed to react quickly so that we wouldn't be eaten alive. So sometimes this goes very quickly. Our bodies know exactly what to do. The mind doesn't get engaged. And our nervous system is still programmed to respond quickly to Vedna. The problem is, is that most of the tigers we see today are paper that we've made up in our minds. And without mindfulness, we go into automatic pilot. We go straight from Vedna to craving with the mind of aversion or greed. as we prepare for battle in response to unpleasant Vedna, you know, we fight from a craving mind or we flee or we freeze, causing a lot of internal and external dukkha. Or if it's pleasant Vedna with no mindfulness, we go on autopilot and we react with the craving mind of greed. We want the object of our desire now without considering the consequences. Without inserting the mindfulness in this gap between Vedana and craving, we forsake the opportunity 
of choosing how to respond from a different place than craving. We forsake how to choose to respond from a place of wisdom. But if you can see Vedna, you can see this gap, and you can insert mindfulness into it. You know, this might be Manjushri's sword that we sharpen in the jhanas and, and wield with in, to get insights. So I'm just going to leave mindfulness right there. You can see Vedna everywhere. Look at how plant life bends and twists to turn towards the sun. Or look at animals, how they respond with pleasant Vedana or unpleasant Vedana. Sometimes my cats react with unpleasant Vedana to noises they've made themselves. <laughs> but they're... So what's the Vedana conditioned by sound contact? If your ears are working and you hear a bell, the sound of that, the three together become ear consciousness. What's the Vedana in response to this sense contact? The sound of a bell is usually pleasant, unless it's too loud or not loud enough. The sound of a child laughing is usually pleasant, Vedna. The sound of a child crying, on the other hand, usually conditions unpleasant, Vedna, in the listener. Nail on a blackboard, unpleasant. What about Vedna conditioned by taste contact? Sweet things usually condition pleasant, Vedna. Sour things, not so much, unless you really like sour. And sometimes taste Vedana changes over time. What's the Vedana conditioned by sight contact? If we see something that is pleasing, pleasant Vedana. Unpleasant, unpleasant Vedana. A lot of sight Vedana is neutral. The Vedana conditioned by body contact. You have a pain in the body. Unpleasant Vedna. Even an itch might produce unpleasant Vedna. Or a teardrop tingling the face as it's falling down the cheek. A lot of our suffering comes from downstream Vedna, the mental Vedna. So first we uh, see something and have the initial Vedna. Like, for instance, ice cream. The first time, you know, when we initially see ice cream, it, the initial thing, that the Vedna that we have, might be neutral because it's just really a brown blob of chocolate ice cream. But it's before perception has kicked in when we initially see it. It's, it's neutral Vedna in response to that brown round blob of something in a white bowl. But then seeing that 
brown blob conditions a memory of what ice cream tastes like, which conditions downstream pleasant Vedna. So while the initial sensory Vedna might be neutral, the downstream mental Vedna might be pleasant or unpleasant. This really takes a lot of insight to see upstream and downstream Vedana. Upstream from initial uh, sense contact and downstream is when the mental kicks in with its own mental sense contact. Let me give you another example of upstream and downstream Vedana. Let's say we hear that bell um, and we like it, and we have, and there's pleasant um, ear vedna. Right, the ears are on. We've got a sound. The ears, uh, and we've got an ear, and so the, together the three come together as contact, and we have pleasant vedna. But then we realize, Dad, gummit, I was just about to get in the first jhana when that bell rang which conditions downstream unpleasant mental Vedana. So the upstream Vedana was conditioned by the initial sensory contact, but then the downstream mental Vedana kicked in. And a lot of our suffering comes from that downstream mental Vedana. It's not necessarily the initial stuff, the initial Vedana we experience. So can we be present to the Vedna of our lives without suffering? Especially the mental Vedna when it kicks in. Or even the initial Vedna. The Buddha had back pain, according to the suttas. And he was enlightened. Do you think he suffered from the back pain? His body was working. He wasn't paralyzed, so he had body consciousness. And he had a body. And he had a sensation in the body, which was pain. That was the object. And then he may have had unpleasant Vedana within a tenth of a second of that body contact. Did he crave not to have it? That's where the dukkha kicks in with craving. Can we just be with the unpleasant Vedna of our lives without craving? Vedna is our friend, which is why I've got the sign in front of me (laughs) instead of craving up here. (laughs) Think of Vedna as your friend. Can we be with our unpleasant Vedna, which happens all the time? It happens within a tenth of a second after contact. Can we be with unpleasant Vedna without craving that it be different? Can we be with pleasant Vedna without craving to have more? Just be mindful of the Vedna. Because if we can be mindful of the Vedna, we can find this gap 
And we can insert our mindfulness and prevent the craving. All right, the Dart Sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya describes this process rather well. In it, the Buddha talks about unpleasant bodily Vedana and how it can lead to downstream unpleasant mind Vedana that triggers craving without mindfulness. And he compares that process leading to dukkha to how that same unpleasant bodily Vedana does not condition suffering for an awakened person who inserts their mindfulness between that Vedana and craving, that downstream mental Vedana and craving. The first dart in the sutta represents the upstream Vedana, the upstream unpleasant body Vedana. coming from body contact with an unpleasant feeling in the body. The second dart is the downstream mental Vedna. And it all depends on whether we can get our mindfulness between that downstream Vedna from our thoughts in the gap between the Vedna from I don't like it and craving not to have it as to whether we suffer. So here's how this sutta goes. Bhikkhus, the uninstructed worldling, the run-of-the-mill, ordinary, uninstructed worldling, feels a pleasant Vedana, an unpleasant Vedana, and a neutral Vedana. The instructed noble disciple, too, feels a pleasant Vedana, an unpleasant Vedana, and a neutral Vedana. What is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between an instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill, ordinary worldling? Bhikkhus, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by an unpleasant bodily Vedna, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, distraught. He feels two Vednas a bodily one and a mental one. The bodily upstream Vedna and the mental downstream Vedna. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart so that the man would feel a Vedna caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by an unpleasant bodily Vedna, he feels two Vednas, a bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by that same unpleasant Vedna, he harbors aversion towards it. And because of it, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from unpleasant Vedana other than sensual pleasure. If he feels a pleasant Vedana, he feels it attached. If he feels an unpleasant Vedana, he feels it attached. And if he feels neutral Vedana, he also feels it attached. This bhikkhus is called an uninstructed 
run-of-the-mill, ordinary worldling who is attached to suffering. But when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by an unpleasant bodily Vedna, he does not sorrow, grieve, or lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. He feels one Vedna, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, but they would not strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel a Vedna caused by one dart only. So too, when that instructed noble disciple is contacted by an unpleasant bodily Vedna, he feels one Vedna and only one, a bodily one, not an additional mental one. Being contacted by that same unpleasant Vedna from the body, he harbors no aversion towards it. And he does not seek delight in sensual pleasure to escape it. For what reason? Because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from unpleasant Vedna other than sensual pleasure that does not lead to dukkha. If the instructed noble disciple feels a pleasant Vedna, he feels it detached. If he feels an unpleasant Vedna, he feels it detached. If he feels a neutral Vedna, he feels it detached. This bhikkhus is called a noble disciple who is detached from suffering. So that's upstream body Vedna and downstream mental Vedna in response to it. Sometimes the upstream Vedana is upstream mental Vedana because thoughts can produce Vedana and thoughts can be the thing that gets the whole ball of wax rolling just like body Vedana or sight Vedana. We can have a thought that can start the spiral going. And without mindfulness, craving can arise with more thoughts which condition more downstream which condition downstream Vedana and more craving. So for instance, um, I had an uh, experience during a sitting uh, in my apartment uh, after I learned the jhanas. I lived about two blocks from where I worked at the Justice Department in D.C. and I was meditating, trying to keep up the practice of an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. But my second hour sometimes was at lunch. I could actually walk home, you know, be home within five or ten minutes, sit for 45 and get back to work and eat at my desk. And I, I did this quite regularly during a period of time. And I came home one day. This was in June of 2011. I remember it because I wrote it down in my insight journal and have never forgotten it. It's one that I didn't need to write down, though, to remember. Um, I just sat down. I, the five things to do at the beginning of a sit, I said, Let my, I intend to get my mind as concentrated as possible and then investigate Vedana. And I didn't know if I'd get into the jhanas or not. And I didn't know, and if, you know, I could have, the whole 45 minutes could have been just sinking mine. But that was my intention in case I got concentrated. So I sat down. I did get concentrated. I got into uh, the fourth jhana and inclined my mind towards insight. 
So to incline your t mind towards insight, all you got to do is take your attention away from the qualities of the jhana. For, and in fourth jhana, it's quiet stillness. And just move your attention over to what you want to investigate. And the jhana will, a concentration level from the jhana will stay. The jhana will slowly dissipate, but your concentration level will remain fairly high and less egocentric. And that's what I did. I just dropped my attention from the quiet stillness of the jhana and, and intended to move it over to investigate Vedna. But in that transition from the jhana to the insight work, my mind got a little wobbly, like it does a lot of times during any shift, and I kind of lost my mindfulness. And I had a couple of thoughts that I wasn't mindful of. And then I kind of woke up and I said, oh, yeah, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, I'm meditating. Where am I? Oh, I'm in my home. What was I going to? Oh, I was going to investigate Vedna. Yeah. Oh, and I just had a couple thoughts. I wonder what's going on. And I look at my thoughts with my concentrated mind, and I've already had several. And they were in the form of bubbles. I don't think I had heard the bubble analogy yet, but I may have. Um, it seemed kind of new to me. And I had, uh, I looked, I had one thought followed by another thought. And I'm sure there was Vedna in there, but I didn't catch the Vedna until after the, the most recent thought. And I was looking at the Vedna from the most recent thought. The original thought in the first bubble was something like, he did me wrong. I was thinking about a colleague who had done me wrong. The second thought was, I got to get him back. And these were just thoughts that just, you know, came out so quickly during that transition from John to the insight. He did me wrong. I got to get him back. And the third thought, which was the one I was having the Vedna from, was, oh my God, I must be evil to want to get somebody back from having done me wrong. So it's that thought that I'm looking at the Vedna from. I must be evil. And here it is in another bubble of its own, not quite as large as the thought bubbles, was a bubble of Vedna. And it was very much unpleasant <laughs> to the, in response to the thought, I must be evil. So in my concentrated state, though, with, which was less egocentric, I had no perturbability of mind looking at the thought I must be evil or looking at the thought of the Vedna, unpleasant Vedna. There was no ego. There was no recoiling from this thought I must be evil. And to my knowledge, this is the first time I'd ever seen a thought that thought I must be evil. In the main, I think I'm pretty good. So seeing a thought that I'm evil in an ordinary mind state would probably make me recoil. But it didn't in this mind state of the jhana concentration. So here's this thought, I must be evil, and this unpleasant Vedna in response to it. Now, so I'm having, uh, I must be evil, unpleasant Vedna. I'm, I'm very mindful, and uh, I'm not craving yet. I'm just kind of looking at what's going on in my mind. And then I look this way to see what's coming. And there was an avalanche coming in response to the thought I must be evil and the unpleasant Vedna about it. I mean, an avalanche. It was bubbles on top of bubbles on top of bubbles on top of bubbles. Each mind bubble was spawning its own Vedna, which is spawning more thoughts. And it was 
papancha getting ready to assail me. But I'm really cool as a cucumber. I'm not egocentric. I'm just looking what's going on in my mind. So I see all this stuff getting ready to come at me. And I very slowly turn back to these initial sequence of bubbles and thoughts and Vedna. And I look at that first bubble, the bubble that somebody had done me wrong, and it just kind of popped like bubbles do. And then the next one about I must get him back popped. And then the third one about I must be evil popped. And along with that, the Vedna popped. And then I looked down at the avalanche, and it was just slowly disintegrating. And then there was this vacuum in my mind, and in comes an amount of compassion I had never known up to that point in my life, filling every nook and cranny in my mind, compassion for myself and all beings that go through this nonstop all the time. We mistakenly think that chasing after Vedana will bring us happiness, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If it's unpleasant, we chase after it with aversion, all that aversion. And if it's pleasant, we chase after it with greed. There are dangers associated with chasing pleasant Vedana. And there are dangers associated with chasing unpleasant Vedna. But Vedna is so ephemeral. It comes and goes and it's about as solid as a bubble. We don't have to chase after it. We can insert our mindfulness between Vedna and craving. So some of the dangers associated with pleasant Vedna, when we crave to have the objects of our pleasant Vedna, you know, we'll suffer when they change and vanish. Pleasant Vedna can also condition addictions and addictive behavior. And unnoticed, pleasant Vedna can also reinforce the wanting mind, which leads to more wanting and more wanting. Unpleasant Vedna conditions aversion in the form of anger and, gr- and hatred and fear and jealousy and resentment. And repeated unmindful, unpleasant Vedna can reinforce the un- uh, aversive mind. The sutta makes a distinction between two kinds of Vedna which I'll read in a minute. One is worldly and one is unworldly. So not all Vedna conditions craving. The type we've been talking about is worldly Vedna, and it does. But unworldly or otherworldly Vedna doesn't. Worldly Vedna that we've been talking about is born of sense contact. Unworldly Vedna is born of seclusion from sense desires and unwholesome mind states. In other words, unworldly Vedna 
is conditioned by abandoning the hindrances. Unworldly Vedana conditions progress along the path. There is unworldly pleasant Vedana and unworldly unpleasant Vedana. Some examples of unworldly pleasant Vedana are the pleasant Vedana we experience when we follow the precepts. Living a life without harming or stealing or sexual misconduct or wrong speech or intoxicants. Those can generate pleasant unworldly Vedana. Having moments of gratitude and generosity can do the same. Practicing metta and the other Brahma-viharas. Practicing the jhanas, unworldly pleasant Vedana. Inclining the mind towards insight practice can produce unworldly pleasant Vedana, which leads to progress along the path. Some examples of unworldly unpleasant Vedana are when we become disenchanted with our thoughts. We're no longer enchanted with them because we see their ephemeral nature, their impermanent ephemeral nature. We're no longer identified with our thoughts or enchanted by them. This is unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. It leads to progress along the path. We become disenchanted with our greed and our aversion. This is unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. We become disenchanted with our attachment to a solid, permanent sense of self. This is unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. Disenchantment is an important step along the path. It leads to dispassion, which leads to nibbana. An unworldly neutral Vedna conditions an equanimous mind as opposed to a deluded one. And of course, an equanimous mind helps us be present to sensory input without without greed or aversion. And so the rest of the sutta on the Vedna foundation with regard to unworldly Vedna just says feeling a pleasant unworldly Vedna one knows one's feeling a pleasant unworldly Vedna. Feeling an unpleasant unworldly Vedna one knows one's feeling an unpleasant worldly Vedna. Feeling a neutral, unworldly Vedna, one knows one's feeling a neutral, unworldly Vedna. So one abides contemplating Vedna internally, externally, and both, arising and passing and both, or with just a sufficient mindfulness for bare attention. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So you can practice mindfulness of Vedna on and off the cushion. On the cushion, you can be mindful of Vedna as an insight practice after concentrating your mind, like my example. And you can use sound. In fact, begin with sound. Being trying to catch the Vedna of thought is difficult at first because both the upstream and downstream thought get involved in it. But just try with sound. You know, 
catch the upstream uh, Vedana of sound, see if there's any mental Vedana that kicks in for downstream that might cause suffering. Probably not. Probably you'll just get the upstream. A lot of sound Vedana is neutral. But start parsing out the Vedana. See if you can find the Vedana of your lives and just be with it without it progressing to craving. After you get good with sound, try it with body. See if you can catch an unpleasant body Vedana before it turns into aversion, like an itch. Um, I remember one time I was sitting and being mindful of the unpleasantness of the itch and found the gap between the unpleasantness and the craving not to have it and, and then scratching it. So I stuck my mindfulness in between the unpleasant Vedna of the itch and craving not to have it and itch, scratching it, and I just was present to the unpleasantness of the itch, and I thought I was going to die because I wasn't scratching it. And lo and behold, the, the, the itch subsided on its own without needing to be scratched. I was just amazed. I've never done that before. I mean, I routinely scratch my itches, but... It was a nice experiment. Could I be pleasant with the unpleasant Vedna of my life without craving to have things different than the way they were? And you can do the same with a teardrop. The tingling sensation can sometimes be unpleasant. You know, you want to wipe it away. So Ken, and I, I did that experiment too, and likewise thought I would die from not wiping away, but I watched that tingle go all the way down my, to my jawline and then drop off without craving for things to be different. And uh, an off-the-cushion practice is great at mealtimes. Notice taste Vedna when you're eating or drinking. It can come from the texture of the food, pleasant, unpleasant, it could come from the temperature of the food or drink, pleasant, unpleasant. It can come from taste. It's really hard not to get lost in the enjoyment of eating. So see if you can parse out the Vedna from food and drink. Okay, that's Vedna. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.